0: not all that troubled by being frog march yeah. to the head i mean i think she's just sort of like yeah let's see where this goes frog march uh, to the head yeah. sounds hilarious well i mean it's a weird name for whatever this like chamber is like i know Star and we're on chamber. a ship uh, it's yeah like, it's
1: like yeah the climax of this book happens, it happens in, in, in a toilet, toilet. <laughs> Hello, We're here <laughs> in <not> person. <laughs> it's not amazing. It is our uh, second annual in-person in Upper Middle Brow recording. Tell the, will you tell the people where we are? Uh, yeah, we are in Higgins Beach, which is a, not really a town, a uh, hamlet, a settlement, a upper, upper brow <laughs> place. Yep. Uh, probably about 10 miles southeast of Portland, Maine, everybody. Uh, yeah, we are in the different Portland, or I am in the different Portland this time. And um, yeah, my folks come here on a annual vacation, and uh, Jesse Dukes drove down from Brunswick today to do this taping. And we're going to go surfing afterwards, because Hurricane Franklin, uh, the remnants of Hurricane Franklin, kind of swept through somewhat dramatically earlier today. Yes. And uh, And yeah, we're going to go surfing, because as our website says we are fair to mid-lane surfers. Indeed,
0: indeed. And our thanks uh, to Pat and Peter Bag for letting us use their bedroom uh, to tape this episode. The guest bedroom. Or not guest bedroom. the, no, the, the master. The master bedroom yeah. of a guest house, I should say. It, there you go, it yes. Is, it's not their full-time <laughs> bedroom. It is... Uh, I feel like that would be weird and unnecessary. I really want a part-time bedroom. Yeah. that's.
1: I mean, I guess rich people have part-time bedrooms.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, I suppose when we go on vacation, we all have part-time. Okay. So here's my opening bit. Oh, I thought we were already in it. Oh, well, that's... Yeah. That was, we are kind of in it. That was the it, light bit. That was the light bit. So, okay. So yesterday, you sent a text to me and several friends proposing 3 p.m. as a session zero for a and d game. Mm-hmm. There's some chatting, and I write back... Ugh, I have plans from 2 until 5. I could shift them earlier to be ready by about 4. But my impression is Ben works until the early evening. Ben is one of the other people. Evening time would definitely be better for me. Then little time goes by and I write update. I'm going to shift my plans to the morning so I can probably make 3.30. Then Ben writes, can I be a barbarian gnome office worker? The rage is real. Then he writes, yeah, I will be tied up till 4. Justin writes, I can do 4, dot, dot, dot. Bag. Okay, this is very normal. (laughs) Scheduling is usually the BBEG in these circles. Six question mark. I write back. I can do six, but it sounds like four works for everybody unless it doesn't work for you, Chris. Bag. Either works for me. I think evening works better for Jesse, too. (laughs) Which I found perplexing. Justin writes, I can do six. I write again, I moved my afternoon plans around so I could make either four or six work, or five. So I'd say whatever is best for Ben and Justin. Justin writes, either work. I write, works for me. That was an accidental sort of auto-reply. Then you write, Ben slash Jesse, can you do six? (laughs) Ben writes, I will be fatigued after raging for 10 turns. But yes, Ben writes, funny, not funny. Somebody gives him a funny emoji. I write, I am Jesse, and yes, four, five, and six all work. I'm starting to wonder if you're not getting all of my messages, though. <laughs> Justin Reich, funny. Looks we are good for. Looks like we are good for six. Bag, are you getting Jesse's messages? Bag, I am getting messages. I will start a new thread that Marlena <laughs> involved that confirms 6 p.m. includes the Zoom leak. Okay, and then it continues. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, uh, I can see I was somewhat uh,
1: a little like thick-headed on that one. Um, there's, it is, it is very, in my defense, I would say it is very normal, uh, in D and D circles to like have a lot of trouble to pin down times. Um, and eventually you're just like,
0: we're going with six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was particularly funny was it seemed like you perhaps thought I was somebody other than I, Jesse. I, 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 too. No, I, like perhaps I was Ben. And at one point it seems like you maybe get, we getting the idea that I was Jesse, but you still weren't quite sure. <laughs> and so you chose to address this mysterious person as Ben slash Jesse in order to cover
1: <laughs> it all seemed the
0: like you. T- I mean, like my favorite
1: feature of that thread is like. Justin's continued everything's fine everything's fun it works <laughs> like, great four works for me five works for me six works for me <laughs> and
0: and my sort of like once again yeah <laughs> I cleared my plans so actually any of these times are now good amazing yeah yeah, yeah. but but we had we we pulled a listener The session happened, and it was really fun.
1: It did, yes. Uh, And as usual, uh, we ran over by about 50%, uh, which is another feature of playing tabletop role-playing games these days.
0: Well, and speaking of running over by about 50%, maybe we should dig in into our episode. Let's do it. Uh, Today on Upper Middle Brow, we are talking about the second half of William Gibson's cyberpunk classic, Neuromancer, published in 1984. Last time, we talked about the first half Uh, Maybe I'll just start the chapter uh, recap, and we can... So, um, the last half ended on a a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. uh, Case, the protagonist, the sort of of slab-of-meat protagonist, um, and hacker-slash-interface cowboy, I think is the technical term, uh, had been pinched by the Turing police, uh, who one assumes are police that are designed... The sort of like Interpol, but with a specific let's not let AI do what the AI in the Terminator movies did kind of mission. Um, Named after Alan Turing, of course, um, and his famous test for artificial intelligences. Um, So the uh, Turing police are um, they're trying to get information out of Case. Um, Case is like, oh no, the jig is up He's kind of depressed by this But Wintermute kills them by taking over The various maintenance drones in this orbital station It's kind of gruesome A kind of like uh, spider lawnmower chops mm-hmm. one in half, and there's some other stuff like that that happens. Yeah,
1: drone crashes into two of them, takes one of their heads off because the drone has uh, kind of helicopter blades. Right,
0: right, and then and then pushes the other one off a bridge, I think. Um, yes, so Case it's is... a very
1: ca- maximum overdrive moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, so Case is now free, and he makes his way back um, to the Garvey tug, I think, or to uh, the two space Rasta friends, Um, And they decide they're going to go ahead and start the Straylight run. Wintermute sends the message. So Molly is starting the wet work, which is infiltrating Straylight, which is this kind of cavernous, nearly infinitely large, given that it only contains about five people, apparently, villa uh, that the Tessier ash pools live in. Um, So she's starting to go in there and sneak around um, with the goal of kidnapping three Jane Marie France, Tessier Ashpool, uh, the youngest scion of the creepy family. And who we think
1: has the true name of this AI that is causing some problems that will, that is kind of eventually the MacGuffin of the whole
0: book. She has a MacGuffin. There's sort of like three or four MacGuffins, yeah. but she's, it's sort of like, it's like one of those plots where you have to assemble the three MacGuffins together, kind yeah. of like uh, the fifth element or something yeah, like that. Totally. Like, um, and, um, so case starts the stray light run with Dixie flatline starts hacking, which actually turns out to be kind of anticlimactic. Cause it's really just like, Unleash the Chinese virus, yeah. and then the stuff that you know—the thing that this book is famous for—the depiction of cyberspace. To me, thirty years later is kind of forty years later is kind of underwhelming. It just looks like you're watching like a video game, like a bad video, like game. like a sixteen or yeah, eight bit video right, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's big red shapes. Yeah, it's like and, an
1: RGB, yeah, like only, and it, it like the the Chinese computer virus for all its sophistication appears to be like a giant green cube. That slowly grows right. over kind of the exact amount of time necessary to get just up to the finish of the stray light run.
0: Right, and and this, I think, what's be, what's being hacked in this case is Wintermute, the AI's mainframe, which I would also say, based on what I now know about hacking probably is redundant to what molly is doing you know like it, it sort of feels like if you can get like one of the leaders of the corporation to give you her passwords you probably don't need to hack the mainframe but whatever yep it's 1984 we don't know how this stuff works um the other thing that kind of happens and then i'll switch over to you is that armitage um is going increasingly crazy uh, Corto, or Corso? Corto, right? Um, his actual identity sort of reemerges and is somewhat confused, kind of seems to be aware that Wintermute isn't an AI, but has him confused for his general. He's going nuts, and Wintermute arranges for him to ass- basically accidentally eject himself into vacuum mm-hmm. of space. Case is upset about this, not because he particularly cares about Armitage slash Corto, but because he's afraid that he'll lose his ability to kind of undo the poison Mm -hmm. that uh, Armitage um, has put in him that will uh, cause him to revert back to not being able to jack into cyberspace. And I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, there's some
1: odd kind of narrative business about the bigger spaceship that Armitage is on and the Marcus Garvey, which is a tug, which is kind of attached to the bigger spaceship. A little hard to follow. It's a little hard to follow. It ends up being a way for Malcolm to kind of display a little like space daring do. Um, And we do get this like wonderful image of the Marcus Garvey kind of like tugboating this massive spaceship through space there's
0: a very nice description of the of the uh, the larger ship being kind of insect light yeah and the the marcus garvey being much more kind of rugged and industrial looking sort of nestled in its in its uh belly kind of like that and yeah malcolm case is sort of doing computer stuff triangulating back and forth between winter mute and dixie flatline and following molly through the Simsting simstim st- rig and then malcolm is doing kind of like space troubleshooting which he's good at yeah. um and there are a couple of fun moments of kind of malcolm comic relief too yes. uh his his relationship with case is sort of funny yeah uh, they it's, they like each other but they don't really get each other
1: <laughs> it's one of my like favorite bits yeah. of uh it's a little like han solo and 3po
0: yeah yeah a little yeah it it also there's a moment and it really reminds me of traveling in east africa where uh you know right around this time they're actually cases thinking about giving up so are malcolm and his other rasta friend but case ba- basically says look i, I don't want to leave molly behind mm-hmm. oh and also the sacks of poison um so maybe we should stick it out and malcolm kind of smiles really big as though he, this is what he's been waiting for case to say yeah and he's like yeah i'm with you and i you know and, and <laughs> case is like i don't understand you guys and malcolm says no understand you either, Mon, but we all have to walk on jaw love or something or something like that. And it really does remind me of sort of interactions I've had cross-culturally where it's like, I don't quite know what that conversation was, but we seem to be in agreement and we seem to like each other, so let's just keep go going. With it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Malcolm is a er version of Amos from uh, the expanse. he's kind of like the muscular guy with maybe a dark backstory who at this point is like all right, cool. If you say we're going to go kill people, we're going to kill people.
0: Hey. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm not really qualified to say whether the depictions of the Rastafarian guys are sort of culturally accurate or sensitive or not. I find them enjoyable, but it would not surprise me if somebody who was closer to that culture found them to be a little bit condescending too.
1: I, I did a little digging on this point. We'll probably come back to this later. Mm. Um, I did some digging in a. Um, Attempt on my part to uh, resuscitate my opinion mm. <laughs> of this book, mm-hmm. and actually, I found out some cool things that um, I think are are actually pretty culturally appropriate, mm. um, and uh, made me think about this book in a, a different way. Um, so we might come yeah. back to that in a bit. Sounds good. But um, so we do a little flip flop onto the Villa Straylight, and um, this is another one of the features where the technology kind of exists in service of the narrative. Like, you can imagine Gibson being like, crap, okay, so I've got this character, but he's plugged in most of the time, and he's kind of interacting with Malcolm here and there, I figured out how he talks to the Dixie flatline. I figured out how that, how in the world am I going to do the narration of Molly when I've established that this is a third person limited book? was right. Like, Oh, I've got it. All right. There's something. And we, and he does a great job of setting this up early in the book yeah. where there's this way for it happens case. in the,
0: in the earlier heist. Yes.
1: Yeah. And, and kudos. Like yeah. you it gotta, works. you gotta do your, you gotta do your legwork in heists to explain the action of what's going to happen later. Um, and so we flip flop back and forth from case and Molly through something called a sim switch, sim, stim, 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 simulated stimulus, sim, stim rig, and where he can see what is going on for her. And unfortunately also feel what's going on for her. Right. Um, we yeah. flip over and, uh, get a scene, a very confusing scene where Molly encounters, uh, Tessier Ashpool, the elder, the father, who is attempting to commit suicide through overdose. There's kind of a pretentious conversation, and Molly like cuts it all off by shooting him in the eye with a poison dart and uh, sort of kills him. But... Because she went and did that, she gets captured and neutralized by a combination of the ninja Hideo, but also Peter Riviera? Riviera. Riviera. I think last episode I was calling him Henry Rivera, (laughs) 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 which is probably a baseball player. Um, But uh, yeah, Peter Riviera has uh, kind of turned uh, to the other side and has allied himself with the Tessier Ashpools So Molly is in their clutches, uh, but it looks like there's a glimmer of hope because Three Jane is kind of interested and curious about Molly. Um, And then we get the scene where Case and Malcolm decide to go and rescue Molly. One of the justifications is that the Rastas are warriors, and they see a kindred spirit in Molly, and they want to help go and get her back. Yep. Case, uh, during some of his uh, brushes with the AIs, um, does kind of get momentarily neutralized by Neuromancer, uh, who is the other AI, uh, the one that we've been calling Rio for a bit. And he gets kind of sidelined in a cyberspace. Um, The conceit here is that Neuromancer is kind of hoping that if he keeps Case in this particular cyberspace long enough, in real life he's flatlining and his brain is going to die. Neuromancer will be safe. Wintermute won't get erased. And everything will kind of keep going as planned. Um, Case spend some time in this particular cyberspace. Linda I, I Lee call this, is there. I call
0: this scene the last temptation of case. Excellent.
1: It's also, there is a very, very clear and also very odd, um, echo of the scene in, uh, the movie Annihilation, mm. uh, which came out a few years ago. Mm. And I have these same issues with, uh, as Neuromancer, but, uh, In a wonderful, uh, I I mean, I kept experiencing a lot of things where I was like, oh, my God, this book has been mined repeatedly for uh, cultural nods. The way that Malcolm rescues Case is he takes his headphones and sort of puts them over Case's ears and plays uh, Rastafarian dub uh, through it. And Case can kind of hear it coming very similar to the way that... um, uh, Sadie Smith, Sadie Sink's character in Stranger Things hmm. is brought back from being killed by Vecna uh, hmm. by uh, Kate Bush's running up a hill. Running up the hill.
0: He also gives him a, a mega shot
1: of speed. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, which does not occur in yeah. <laughs> Stranger Things. Beta, beta, theta, phylamine, or whatever. Oh, oh, yeah. that's right. He yeah. gives him the like drug that <laughs> it's like the one drug that still works the for The very gnarly
0: drug that yep. Case has uh, had two times. So I'm going to kick it back over to you to take us to the end. So we have this final confrontation. Case comes out of his his um and and one does have the sense that Case has made a choice, you know, that Case is somewhat tempted to just live out the rest of his life in Neuromancer's kind of fantasy world that that he's created. He's, he's provided him his ex-girlfriend, Linda Lee, who is, seems to be maybe a construct, like her brain was scanned too, and maybe that's why she was murdered in the first place. Um, there's some hint of that. But then we have this final confrontation where Wintermute guides Malcolm and Case. Malcolm is there for muscle. He's carrying this uh, sawed-off shotgun um, again, trying to rescue... He, he likes Molly. Um, they like Molly, and so they don't want to leave her behind. Case the, the motivations are a little bit mixed up. They come into this giant, cavernous kind of throne room that is enormous and sort of full of shadows. You kind of think of it as like the Alhambra in space, sort of like that. It's got a pool, sort of like a penthouse also. It's got kind of aspects of that. Um, in there, um. Three Jane has really been kind of charmed by Molly at this point. So even though Hideo the ninja um, wounds Malcolm with an arrow, they bind his wound and it's all pretty collegial at this point. And Three Jane's, you know, and this is really angering Peter Riviera, who's sort of trying to become Three Jane's like lover and patron and sort of, you know, uh, uh, vizier. You know, heir to the throne. He's Jafar. And, and, and yeah, exactly. And three Jane's kind of over Peter Riviera at this point, and so finally Riviera goes too far and tries to murder Case with the Fletcher. Riviera blinds Hideo with his illusion ability, and but Hideo is just sort of like, oh, this is going to make it even more fun to kill you, because uh, Hideo, you know, is this vat grown ninja um who interestingly becomes a little bit sort of admirable i feel like at this point like or you know even he he it's it's weird how how kind of the antagonists and protagonists switch a little bit mm-hmm. so hideo goes chasing after peter riviera and once he's gone there's nobody left to, to guard three jane and malcolm's like well you know i've got a shotgun and i'm gonna blow your head off unless you take us to the thing we're looking for and three jane's kind of all sort of dopey and drugged up and it's like ah, okay sure whatever and, and they go to the room the head They go to the head. Three Jane gives up the secret word. The hack is completed. And essentially Wintermute's heist is pulled off. And Wintermute and Neuromancer sort of merge. And then in a kind of expositional epilogue, um, Wintermute as the Finn kind of has a a final conversation uh, with Case. Uh, Case, Molly, Malcolm... Basically, everybody who survives is sort of paid off Mm -hmm. and is given the chance to live happily ever after. Um, And Riviera, we assume, is dead. And we learn, essentially, that Wintermute has now merged with the entire internet matrix. He is the internet. He is the the matrix. He is the matrix. And that Neuromancer might also still exist as a kind of subconstruct of that. Neuromancer is understood to have an actual personality, whereas Wintermute and intermute can only interact through kind of other people's personalities mm-hmm. um, but then wintermute says you know I, I could use this power to take over the world and you know do the Terminator thing I suppose but I'm not really interested in that I just want to talk to the other one like me like and the Centauri. aliens yeah.
1: <laughs> at case I think says no shit.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, Wintermute's like I'm incredibly powerful. I have godlike power, and therefore, I'm no longer interested in the world of mortals anymore. Yeah. Or this book. You know, take it easy, Case. <laughs> See you around. You know, and then we, you
1: can hear William Gibson be like the sweat running down his brow, like the yeah. pilot in airplane being like, "How the
0: fuck do I get out of this?" Well, yeah, and it is a kind of. I mean, it's sort of like. It is. It, it is. I'll talk about this more later, but we do have the sense that Molly, Case, Malcolm, Hideo, even Three Jane, but to a lesser degree, are just kind of like chess pieces in this, this sort of broader mm-hmm. game being played by these kind of demonic or godlike beings. And then I guess the sort of other epilogue is that Case and Molly have a romance for a while, but Molly eventually leaves leaves a kind of kind-hearted kiss-off saying, I need to kind of keep, I need to, forget how she puts it, but she needs to keep her edge. Mm -hmm. Um, She's she's sort of not cut out uh, for domestic happiness. And so she leaves. uh, Case apparently lives more or less happily ever after. And uh, that's the end, right?
1: I think so. Yeah, I love that basically his payoff for saving pretty much humanity is like enough to get him an updated cyber deck.
0: Right. Yeah, I kind of had sense that they could live off it for a few years, right? Yeah. Like, like like, he maybe got like $500,000 yeah. yeah, or know. something like that. Chris Begg, you were a little bit let down by the first half of this book. Did it get better?
1: Yes and no. Mm. Um, the, the problems that I identified last time are still very much there for me. And I've mm-hmm. got a reading that I think will do a microcosm of why for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did put a little epilogue here on my notes that like, despite all of my reservations, I think this is... A really important book, um, and I think you can really see the beginnings of a good, but probably not great writer, um, cracking his first novel. And I think that a lot of the issues are very much of a first novelist under uh, like a wild deadline. Mm. Um, you've mm-hmm. got one year. I mean, it's like more of a game than anything. Um, but um, My issues of the vagueness uh, very much remain. Mm. This is a cluttered as hell second half of a novel. You never really get a clear sense of what's happening. Mm. Um, It always kind of lingers just out of focus or as if obscured by a fog. And you spend a lot of time being like, what is this person's motivation? What do they want? How does this work? And... I think it just really needed uh, a few more editorial passes and someone to be like, Mr. Gibson, this is clearly very well rendered in your brain. You're not yet doing the job to deliver it to the reader Mm. Um, because his language is dense and in some places quite beautiful and in some places like intensely clunky. Um, And all of those things serve to make it read like a very brilliant piece of writing that I might have experienced from a 21 or 22 year old in a creative writing class in a college. I think he was 24 mm, when really? he, no 48. He, uh, he started, he was born in 1948. So he's got, he's in his thirties, Yeah. he's in his thirties, but it's still his first novel. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, he's about 10 years younger than we were yeah. than we are right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do have a lot of issues. Um, my research into the space rastas did bring back a lot of like. Actually,
0: okay, I think this is this really does have something
1: interesting going on here.
0: I, I mean, I do think there is a coherent plot in his head and yeah. coherent themes. And my sense of it is that it's not that it's not that he doesn't know what the book is about. It's more the issue that you identified last time, his sense that he needs to have a hook Mm -hmm. every page or every five pages or whatever. Because I I think that there ends up just being too much stuff going on. So even though I think the characters do have motivations and there's interesting questions, I think that there are some subplots, some sub-themes, some moments that it's more like there's just too much. And I think if you took... So, I mean, an example of this is... Case is subplot with the toxin sacks. I don't think that actually helps the book a lot. I think it's in there to kind of create a greater sense of urgency yeah. and motivation for case. But I actually think case is a much more interesting character. Uh, one sense is that, that even without the toxin sacks case has to make two important decisions yeah. in the second half of the book. I, it, One is he has the chance to run away with Malcolm and the other Rasta when Molly's doing the Straylight Run around the time that Armitage goes crazy. He could just get out. And Gibson offers us two reasons he doesn't. And he literally says at one point, I think, he thought about Molly in Straylight all alone, and then he thought about the sacks. And it's sort of like, you know what if he just thought about Molly? Yeah. (laughs) You know, totally like that would be interesting. Cause his relationship with Molly is very guarded. They are lovers, but, and they are friendly with each other, but they, they don't know each other that well. And both of them are very vulnerable and very protective of their true feelings. And, and even in the very end, Molly, we're doing this, she's doing the stray light run and through this sim stem, she's kind of telling him stuff. That's very personal. Yeah. Um, In one sense, there's one sense is there's a real bond there in one sense that case could have been one of these roguish characters like, say, Han Solo or, you know, Robert De Niro's character in Heat or Mm. hundreds of others, essentially a thief who, you know, his instincts are saying, play it safe. But then or Humphrey Bogart's character in High Sierra, the movie I mentioned last time but then some sense of connection to another human tells him to take a risk that maybe he shouldn't Mm -hmm. take. That's super interesting. But then if you're just like, yeah, but he kind of had to do that because there are these poisonous sacks in him, it kind of robs us of that too. And I'm going to give a few other examples later of moments where I think there's a real narrative precision in terms of giving us just enough information to figure out what's happening. And I think there are moments like that, but the problem is you can't, Trust, you can't trust everything because some of the moments where y- he's telling us things are sort of red herrings, mm-hmm. are sort of unimportant. So even though there are moments where you're like, wow, this paragraph, he gave us so much information right here. And I have an example I'll share in a little bit. Um, there are other paragraphs. Where you're like, I think this would. I think this is kind of a red herring. Like the whole Armitage plot. Oh my god, is kind of a red herring. Yeah, it, he, Armitage basically is only necessary to get the team together. Yeah. and then and I think it's again the reason you were talking about last time is just Gibson at thirty two or whatever is like, oh, how can I make this? How can I raise the tape? What if? what if Armitage is slowly going crazy and what if he has this crazy backstory and what if he loses it? And I write a really surreal scene where he like doesn't know if he's Armitage or Corso and case is sort of trying to reason with him. And it's like, that was a good writing exercise. You know, it would have been an interesting short story. Cut it. Cut it. Get Don't need it. Out of it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, a bit, you know, more on that. I, w- I definitely have something I want to read later, but it looks like you have another place you're going, so I might save my thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, about the, I mean, the toxin sacks, and this kind of, like, gets into my next point. There are so, there are not so many. There are several instances in this book where it is so clear that something is simply a plot device. Yeah. It is just there to usher the action forward, and then it's just summer, summerly, summarily. uh, dispensed with yeah um the the poison sacks um we find out like somebody's like okay so you kind of merged with the internet and when you did that it just rendered the sacks useless and they are just going to you need new blood change but that's it they're just going to melt away and not affect you i, th-
0: I think it was winter mute programmed your brain to release the enzyme you needed or totally. something. It wasn't, a, it wasn't entirely you just merged with the internet. It's, a, it's, it a, it's like, another, it's a day of yeah, sex machina. Right. Like we get very a much big
1: a, helping hand. Literally. From, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other one, which is the, this question here uh, about evaporating obstacles, the sacks mm. are one. Yep. Um, Hideo goes off to chase down and kill Riviera. Malcolm pulls out a shotgun and frog marches Hideo's boss to the center of the Tessier-Ashpool empire. And I don't think we see Hideo again. I think that's right. And it's like, what the heck? This guy is supposed to be like a food processor of a ninja and is able to do anything while he's blind. Why doesn't he at least show back up? And there's a scene of Three Jane maybe calling him off, but there's an opportunity there. And, but you can see that Gibson is like, well, all right, we used him to get rid of Riviera
0: and he's kind of out of the picture and yeah. it's clumsy. It's clumsy. Yep. And I do think where Gibson is gesturing in this moment is that three Jane actually doesn't really care uh, whether winter mute wins or not. And so is kind of like, as not all that troubled, by being Frog March yeah. to the head, I mean. I think she's just sort of like, yeah, let's see where this goes. Frog March uh, to the head yeah. sounds hilarious. Well, but... I mean, it's a weird name for whatever this like chamber is. Like I know, and we're on chamber. a ship. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's
1: like yeah. The climax of this book happens, happens in a, a toilet. toilet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it is. It is. I, I, you know, and so yeah, I think it's a solvable problem, and I do sort of like the idea that like, I think there is the opportunity. To maybe exploit one of the one of the sub themes is Molly sort of despises Hideo because a kind of like clone or mm-hmm. twin of Hideo killed her ex boyfriend who is Johnny mnemonic from a favorite William Gibson story yep. and and kind of like the it's kind of like case 1.0 johnny mnemonic like their their personalities are very similar if mm-hmm. you've read that story and in, you know and in fact johnny mnemonic was portrayed in the movie by keanu reeves much in the way that i imagine case being portrayed by keanu Reeves <laughs> to sort of like winter mute what the what are you doing you know you killed them you son of a bitch yeah. you killed them you killed the destroyings <laughs> yeah um I am an interface cowboy. <laughs> um, yeah, there is. And even, you know, there's some of that in The Matrix too. Like there's a couple scenes that kind of remind me of those I moments. know Kung Fu. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, so, you know, there is this interesting setup where Molly sort of, all to this point, we're being set up with a kind of like a final confrontation between Molly and Hideo. And I think, you know, it's fine maybe that you have the rug pulled under out from under you in that situation, because I think that, like, maybe we're supposed to also kind of get a sense that, like, Hideo, Molly, and Malcolm as kind of, like, an even case as kind of, like, hired warriors all have a kind of you have the sense that they have a kind of understanding of one mm-hmm. another that we're they're sort of like we're yeah we're all the chess pieces aren't we yeah. and we work for crazy people <laughs> <laughs> crazy they, they almost have the, I know I just get the sense of this kind of like mutual respect between them when Hideo's bandaging you know um you know cuz it's Hideo who who kind of nurses Molly back to mm-hmm. health and it's a, a, on 3 Jane's orders and it's Hideo who bandages Malcolm and it it, it is kind of interesting that you do maybe have a sense that these characters are realizing that they're enemy ship is structural yeah and not inherent and maybe that's a theme but that's kind of underdeveloped too and as you say yeah he just walks away he doesn't turn up and there was more to do and it, it is it's clumsy yeah it's a missed opportunity hideo um, is awesome though he and, is awesome and i love the depiction of him is, is so complimentary you yeah. know and if you think you know at first we think of him when he's first introduced you see him carrying out this murder and you're like oh this feels very antagonistic but like He's not doing anything that Case and Molly mm-hmm. aren't doing. Basically, just working for his employer loyally and competently, yeah. and not with any particular cruelty. As far as I can, say. like if 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 Three J needs him to kill somebody, he does it. If, but he doesn't seem to take any pleasure in that, except mm-hmm. for when he stalks Riviera. But but you know, Riviera is such a creep.
1: Yeah, he's such a dick. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, one of the nice things about this book is, like, so we get a ninja character, but it is totally stripped of our usual pretty bad and inaccurate cultural assumptions mm. about what a ninja is or what one looks like. Hideo's just kind of a guy. A bit he's, slubby. Yeah. yeah, and he's, like, he's never depicted as, like, wears a black mask with an eye slid and two-toed boots, like, though I do think he does actually have shoes that have two toes. Um, right. But... That's like the one nod to the stereotypical ninja, and other than that, like he's drawn as just, like you said, a competent warrior who wears things
0: and uses tools that are useful to his trade. At one point, he picks up Malcolm's sawed-off shotgun, and I mean, very much in a homage to Obi-Wan Kenobi, says something like, this is without subtlety, <laughs> <laughs> which... A double-barreled sawed-off shotgun is indeed without subtlety. Of course,
1: especially when Hideo is wielding, I think like a like a ceremonial bow right. with these like very intense uh, arrowheads. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I've got a reading that's sort of a distillation of why I struggled with the book, but sure. I've just talked a bunch. I was wondering if you want to go somewhere else.
0: You know. Why don't my, you do your reading? Yeah, and and then I'll do my reading. Um, mine
1: mine kind of fits in like if we're gonna say something complimentary about Gibson, mm-hmm. that like he just did some good things with Hideo and Case and yep. all of these like sort of uh, proletariat warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, this this swerves in the other direction of places where. He just misses. Mm. Um, and this well, is... why didn't
0: you do yours? Mine is more complimentary, and okay. mine is on the theme of like I thought this was brilliant. I wish he did this more mm. and the other stuff less.
1: Okay. So... Um, so this is the passage that really put me in. Oh, I'm back teaching creative writing again. Mm. This is the beginning of a chapter. She missed it by a fraction. Mm. She nearly cut it, but not quite. She went in just right. Case thought, the right attitude. It was something he could sense, something he could have seen in the posture of another cowboy leaning into a deck, fingers flying across the board. She had it, the thing, the moves, and she'd pulled it all together for her entrance, pulled it together around the pain in her leg and marched down three Jane's stairs like she owned the place, elbow of her gun arm at her hip, forearm up, wrist relaxed, swaying the muzzle of the Fletcher with the studied nonchalance of a Regency duelist. When do you get an actual, visual, concrete image in that paragraph? The stairs, strolling down the stairs. How many sentences are we in at that I point? Wait, seven or something like that. How many it's?
0: She was it, right? Or She, she almost, missed, it, she by missed by it by a fraction. She
1: nearly cut it, but not quite. Yeah. The right attitude. It was something he could sense. Yeah. She had it, the thing, the moves, and she'd pulled it all for God's sakes. Tell us what the fuck it is. Yeah. Like, don't like, don't do this thing by with everyone withholding information from your reader, withholding narrative details and visual details does not make you a better storyteller. It doesn't up the stakes. It doesn't help anything. Tell
0: us what is going on. Tell us what it is, please. I do like I like, you know, I, I agree with you. I like this moment, which is Molly's attempt to kind of pull off the wet work and i like that it's from case's perspective i think but the only thing i like about case is when he's admiring molly that's like my old only- <laughs> i don't find case to be very likable but i like he he is very appreciative of her kind of cat like grace mm-hmm. and her balletic motions and it's kind of the one time i find my attitude softening so i like that Case is watching Molly try to make her play. Mm -hmm. And then I also like the way in which it goes wrong here. I kind of bought that too. So I like the scene, but I think you're right. And and the only reason maybe it worked for me the last time I read it is that I already kind of knew what was happening. So I've got a fix. Mm.
1: Molly marched down three Jane stairs like she owned the place. Elbow of her gun arm at her hip, forearm up wrist relaxed, swaying the muzzle of the Fletcher with the studied nonchalance of a Regency duelist.
0: Yeah. It's a much better opening to a a chapter. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about as I've been reading this book a lot is the Fellowship of the Ring. I don't know if... And I promise it's not a non-sequitur. It doesn't seem like a non-sequitur. I see. And because... It's made me wonder why this book was so popular, and Mm -hmm. it's so influential. And I think it's because, sure, there's DNA, but it also is a fully realized vision of a world that did not necessarily exist until this book out. And I think The Fellowship of the Ring does that as well. The Hobbit notwithstanding, because The Hobbit is smaller, it is more claustrophobic, it Mm -hmm. is more roguish, it is less heroic, right? So, when you get to the Fellowship of the Ring, suddenly this world has like a 3,000 or 5,000 year history, and there are these epic fights. And this character we heard about in The Hobbit, the Necromancer, uh, sorry, not the Necromancer, uh-huh. uh, I, I almost slipped and referred to him as the Neuromancer, the Necromancer um, is revealed to be another aspect of the ancient enemy. Mm-hmm. And and it's this big, broad world. But if you were to give me the Fellowship of the Ring and say, we'd like you to cut 100 pages out of that, I'd be like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Bombadil, gone. <laughs> Bombadil, gone. You know? And then there's some other stuff. Too. It gets a little harder after that. But I think Bombadil gives us like 90. Uh, Probably the Barrow Whites are gone. I don't know. Maybe I'd find a way to get the, yeah. the Hobbits some swords. You know, maybe I would keep them. But the, the Barrow Whites to me are just sort of like... The prequel to the ring 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 wraiths yeah you know, they're just kind of like another version of the ring Wraiths, but not as interesting. so you know and and like probably we would get to kind of like the way the movie did it. I think this is one of the things those movies got right, which was got us to the writers writing into the Shire and scaring the hell out of our protagonists mm-hmm. sooner because yep. that is awesome yeah um and there is this kind of build. I mean, I even remember reading that book and they're like, we'd better get out of here soon. You know, Sauron knows about us. He knows the ring is in the Shire. He'll be sending his minions. And then, and then they're like, the summer went by months went by in the summer and the late summer days. And the cicadas were chirping and Bilbo had another party. I thought you guys were in a hurry, you know? And, And, and I think there's something similar going on here, which is that Gibson gets away with a lot of lack of narrative control because of the vision yeah. And because and because ultimately I sense the vision is coherent in his mind and it comes through. And I think another thing because he gets away with it, he also engenders close reading and in certain instances the close reading does bear mm-hmm. fruit. Um so I I mean uh, do you mind if I go on to this go for or do you want i
1: pretty much made my point. Okay. I
0: mean I think it's I, you know my point is
1: this is a novel of moments of brilliance and like you said i think you're right that it's nothing like this existed before um and his flights of fancy are wonderful and i really enjoy that if that chapter started with that sentence the way that i did it and got rid of the rest of it and if that approach were done for the rest of the book, I think we would have a real masterpiece on our hands. Uh, Gibson has spoke somewhat slightingly of this book. He said uh, about his younger self, I think I'd buy that guy
0: a drink, but I certainly wouldn't loan him money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Unlike Terry Carr. Um so I mentioned a a William Faulkner novel last time, but I didn't quite get it right. And so I actually, I, I, wanted, I, did, I went back and looked a little bit closer, and I believe it's The Light in August. Um, and so here's the passage I was referring to. She had lived there eight years before she opened the window for the first time. She had not opened it a dozen times hardly before she discovered that she should not have opened it at all. She said to herself, That's just my luck. The sister-in-law told the brother. Then he remarked her changing shape, which he should have noticed sometime before. Now, I gave you a little bit of a hint about it before, but Mm -hmm. apparently what we are supposed to understand in reading this dense paragraph is this woman opened up her window and somebody came through the window and raped her. And that has led to her getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. And... It's very Southern, you know. Um, if you understand what I mean, she opened up the window and she should not have done so, and now you can see her shape has begun to change. And it's like, <laughs> that, that is all we need to say about these matters because we all know that these things happen and it's best not to summon them by naming the actual thing, right? Like there's a kind of southernness to it. And it, you know, but would anybody have gotten that from Faulkner, the actual meaning, the subtext of that the first time they read it? Would anybody have bothered to read it closely if Faulkner was not already a famous novelist, famous for subtext? Mm-hmm. And I, I want to share another example of this in Neuromancer that I think is great. But it's also like this could so easily have been missed if this novel had been ignored for the reasons of craft yep. that you're talking about, because moments like this are kind of few and far between. So... I would say my favorite part of the second half is Neuromancer's attempt to get Case to quit, yeah. to give up and die, or just to give up. Um, one has the sense that maybe Neuromancer would have built some kind of like, that Case would have been allowed to live his entire natural lifespan out before mm-hmm. flatlining, you know, in about three seconds or something like that. Yeah. Um, so Neuromancer creates this world with his ex-girlfriend. It's on a beach in Morocco. And... And then what happens, first of all, is the way that he entraps him is fascinating. So they're walking through Straylight, Malcolm and Case, and there is a Sony monitor, and they see the Finn, who is Wintermute, talking to them. Mm -hmm. And then they go through the door, and they see another Sony monitor, and there is also the Finn, and the Finn says, Case, jack in. You know, we got to jack in right now. Mm -hmm. And Case is like, are you sure? And this little drony robot starts crawling up Case's leg like a spider. And Case is like, whoa, what's going on? And the Finn, as Wintermute, says, oh, don't worry about that. It's just malfunctioning. Jack in. So he jacks in. It turns out that wasn't Wintermute. It was Neuromancer. Yeah. So Neuromancer and Wintermute have been battling. And the drone, the drone is actually Wintermute. The winter drone mute. is Wintermute, but we don't know that <laughs> yeah. yet. We don't ha- haven't pieced that together. And so midway through this hallucination... um. He has a moment, swear words coming here, um, where Linda Lee is there. Case has not submitted to this fantasy yet, and he's still sort of trying to escape. And he's talking out loud, like to the wind, but he's addressing the other AI, Neuromancer. He doesn't know the name is Neuromancer yet. Mean motherfucker, he whispered into the wind. Don't take a chance, do ya? Wouldn't give me any junkie, huh? I know what this is. He tried to keep the desperation from his voice. I know, see, I know who you are. You're the other one. Three Jane told Molly, burning bush. That wasn't Wintermute, it was you. He tried to warn me off with the brown. Now you got me flatline. You got me here nowhere with a ghost like I remember her before. So, I'm going to do a little close reading. Okay. I know who you are. That is, I know that you're not Winter Mute. You're the other one. Mm-hmm. 3 Jane told Molly. In the Simston rig, case overheard 3 Jane said that there used to be two ghosts in the corporate core. The one that they know is Wintermute and another one. 3 Jane told Molly is a reference to that thing that happened about 10 pages ago. Burning Bush. That's a reference to a moment about 100 pages ago where Wintermute, as the fin, says, my other lobe is on to us. It's on page 179. My other lobe is on to me. One burning bush pretty much looks like another. Meaning, and that is a reference to maybe 30 pages earlier where he is explaining to Case, I have to use a personality that you already know. Mm -hmm. I don't know personality, so I have to use someone else's personality to talk to you. Mm -hmm. What would you rather I appeared as a burning bush? (laughs) Which is a joke. Which is a joke and a reference to Exodus (laughs) when a burning bush appears to Moses and that's God, which also ties into the theme of this book, which is are these computer programs or are they gods or are they demons? It's
1: a nice nice moment. It's It's a a, very
0: nice moment. Yeah. It's a very nice moment. And so Three Jane told Molly, burning bush. That's all the information you get, but that should be enough Mm -hmm. if you're playing close attention to understand this is the other one. Then he says, that wasn't Wintermute. It was you. He tried to warn me off the brown. You have to remember that the brown is the name of the little spidery robot that crawled up his leg. So wonderful little bit. Of micro-exposition <laughs> there. And similar, I think, to the Faulkner thing I read mm-hmm. before, where there's not a lot of information. You have to be reading very closely and paying attention to the denseness. Now, you talked about how how Case came out of it. I want to read the moment he comes out of it. I remember it being very beautiful. So he basically starts walking away from Linda towards the music. The, where, And then he hands her his leather jacket and says... I don't know if you're real or not, but it gets cold here. Yeah. Which is, again, a nice little human moment for Case. He's little, he, he thinks this is just a personality construct of his ex girlfriend who he says he doesn't care about, but mm-hmm. at the same time, he cares enough to leave her his fake leather jacket. You know, I think that's great. He's hearing Malcolm Zion dub. There was a great place, an impression of fine screens shifting, moir, degrees of halftone generated by a very simple graphics program. There was a long hold on a view through chain link, gulls frozen above dark water. There were voices. There was a plane of black mirror that tilted, and he was Quicksilver, a bead of mercury skittering down, striking the angles of an invisible maze, fragmenting, flowing together, sliding again. Case, Mon, the music. You back, Mon. The music was taken from his ears. How long? he heard himself ask and he knew his mouth was very dry five minute maybe too long i want to pull the jack mute say no screen going funny then mute say put the phones on you he opened his eyes malcolm's features were overlaid with bands of translucent hieroglyphs and you medicine too derm he was flat on his back on the library floor below the monitor The zionite helped him sit up, but the movement threw him in the savage rush of the beta phenethylamine, the blue derms burning against his left wrist. Overdose, he managed. Come on, mon, the strong hands beneath his armpits lifting him like a child. I and I must go. Now again, close reading. Five minute maybe, too long. I want to pull the jack, mute say no. Screen going funny, then mute say put the phones on you. At first, Neuromancer, disguised as Wintermute, is telling Malcolm, no, don't pull the jack. Leave him. Mm-hmm. Then, just from this sentence, we gather Wintermute rests control of the screen from Neuromancer. Screen going funny. Then Mute say, put the phones on you and the medicine. Put the headphones on him and give him the drugs. And then <laughs> that'll snap him out of it. Yeah. And. And then now, and for the rest of the climax, he's high on beta phenethylamine, (laughs) which I I feel like there's too many drugs in this book. And again, there's a little bit too much. And maybe the, again, would have been better if the music was enough, Mm -hmm. because I think also this is the second important choice that Case makes. It is the same choice that Jesus makes in the last temptation of Christ, which is he's being tempted with... A opportunity to live out his life according to a fantasy. Mm-hmm. He's got a beach. He's got a girlfriend. There's plenty of food. The seagulls are singing. He doesn't have to hack. He doesn't have to go. And, you know, you'd want to think, well, he's actually making the choice towards the end of the book that Neo makes at the beginning of The Matrix. Yep. Red pill versus blue pill. He's choosing the real world. He's making the choice, the opposite choice, of what Cypher Played by Joey Pantoliano in The Matrix makes, which is to betray his friends in exchange for a fantasy like the one that no. NeuroMancers offer. It's really all pretty profound, yeah. and he's giving us just enough information, and I think that was beautifully rendered and wonderful and very interesting. But there's just too much stuff going yeah, on. Totally. The only reason I picked it up this is the third time I've read this book, and I only picked it up on the third time, and I only picked it up because I'm reading it closely for a podcast. Yeah, you know, and it's like it makes me wonder how many great moments and potentially great moments in literature have been overlooked because nobody ever read the book because the book was full of, you know... Too much. Too much yeah. crap. Yeah. And, there, and the other moments got overlooked because it's not Faulkner. It's not William Gibson. It's not somebody who's famous. It's somebody who's a pretty good writer. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that actually... Um, it's been a very long time since
1: I've read light in August. It is a very dense book. Um, I think it's like junior year of college, but I think like what you're talking about, we've talked about this before the EM Forrester thing, Mm. like you have two tools when you're reading a book, you have intelligence, which notices things and you have memory, which picks up things that you noticed before. And what you're talking about is deploying both of those things. The burning bush is a very nicely placed, tasteful, <laughs> <Yeah>. Mr. Gibson, <laughs> use of an illusion that sends the message of the big, of the book. An illusion to an illusion to an illusion. Right, exactly. But is in keeping with this idea of spirituality yeah. and like bigger picture stuff. Yeah. Um, and that is a very effective passage, I think. And... I don't remember if there are earlier details in light in August that would clue you into what all of that stuff means. Yeah. Knowing a little bit about Faulkner that like much better short storyist than novelist. Don't at me. Internet. um, That books get away from him too. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, Lindsay LeJoie has a very funny little bit about mm. Faulkner versus Hemingway um, that is somewhere on her Instagram. I wish I had it right now. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's a really good moment and is a really central aspect of the book. And I agree with you. I wish there was more of that or maybe just less of everything
0: else. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't need to be more. It just needs to be less of everything else. Yeah. I think, although I, maybe then it would only be a novella. I don't know. Not necessarily my problem, but once again, I find myself editing this book yeah. in my head. And so do you, obviously, yeah. <laughs> based on your last yeah. reading.
1: Um, so I, I've got, I think this will probably be the last thing sure. I've got. But um, uh, I was reading, um, there's a great op-ed just recently. Um, this woman, Denise Mina, is uh, publishing new, um, my God, I can't remember the name, the narrator of Raymond Chandler's books. Uh, the main character. Sam
0: Spade or Philip Marlowe? Philip Marlowe, yes. Uh, one of
1: them is Dashiell Hammett, the other one. Yes, yes, know. Raymond Chandler. It's yeah. Philip Marlowe. Apparently, I don't know if this is the Chandler state or something, um, she is writing new Philip Marlowe books. Mm. Um, and uh, And she is trying to duck some of the problematic aspects of sure. Raymond Chandler. But uh, she talks about noir. We talked about noir last time. Yeah. um, That essentially the main action of noir is that the protagonist is always playing catch-up. But she said this, and I thought this was really interesting. And it kind of got me into digging a little bit into the Rastafarians, because I was like, why is this here? Why is this thing here? Um, The central mechanism of noir fiction is to create a justice deficit that needs to be redressed. Shock and violence disarm the readers and heighten their indignation. That way they are not being preached at, but invited to engage. Whereas whodunits and cozy crime are puzzles solved with a drip feed of clues, noir depends on the reader's sense of fairness. There is no better form to explore social injustice and sometimes nudge the dial of change a little bit." Okay, the Rastafarians. Um, Babylon, in uh, Rastafarianism, tends to stand for the excesses and problems of the West. Right. Slavery, greed, capitalism, whereas Zion is the promised land. Right. Um, and in some beliefs, that's Ethiopia. Haile Selassie is the first kind of like pr- the head of Rastafarianism. There is a moment in Neuromancer where... Case has, I don't think it's Malcolm. I think it's Errol, the other Rastafarian, jack in for a moment and look at cyberspace. Yeah. And Errol J- Jackson and Case leaves him in there for a second and then he comes out and Case says, what did you see? And Errol has a very sad expression on his face and he says, Babylon, man. Yeah. Um, and if you start reading this book as a Marxist slash socialist mm-hmm. um, Uh, text where the proletariats are the characters arrayed against the forces of capitalism, it begins to fall into place a little bit better. And you can start seeing why this book became so popular. Um, Because if you drop a book with this much style that has a Marxist bent in the middle of the 1980s, you have the ingredients of like a real runaway hit. Um, And I think including the Rastafarians is this sort of amazing 20 or 30 years ahead of its time attempt from a white writer (laughs) to give a black culture, um, the, the play that it deserves. And, uh, and I, I read this, this, this little piece from Denise Mina and was like, Oh my God. William Gibson is writing a cyberpunk Rastafari and Marxist treatise. This is amazing. Um, and it turns out there's a lot of dissertations in Canada written about Neuromancer. Hmm. Uh, many that a lot of the stuff that I went digging about this, I found in like PhD and like Canadian and American and cultural studies stuff. Um, and it, it definitely like brought me back around. And I hmm. think the place that I'm landing is the place that you're landing. This is, this is so close to being a great book. Uh, there are moments where it's really well written. There's moments when it's just a clunk fest, but I really think the ideas are pretty amazing. I think Gibson feels the same way about it these days.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I should say, I, I said that I thought maybe his depictions of the space Rastafarians were a little bit condescending. And that is in the particular. The I think in the broad sense, he is clearly using them in contrast and as foils to the Tessier-Ashpool clan and to Wintermute. And there's the reference that you gave to, spy, uh, to, to Cyberspace. Malcolm, at one point later, when they're talking about leaving, maybe it's Errol, maybe it's Malcolm, basically says, this battle between the Tessier-Ashpools, Wintermute, and Neuromancer, this is just a Babylon conflict. It's not our fight. Let's get out of here. Yeah. And then Case basically says, though, we don't want to leave Molly behind. And then they are like, yeah, step and We got to go get her, too. And I, I think that's the only real motivation for Malcolm going into Straylight is that he just it's kind of like class solidarity. He yeah. recognizes her as kind of like a fellow like warrior for hire yeah. and likes her and just doesn't want to leave her behind in this like. Pit of wasps, you know? And I think that's what's going on. I think it's, I think the problem is it's a little bit too confusing with Case. I think, I think Case, Gibson gives Case too many potential. It's like he doesn't have one overarching sense of what Case's motivation would be. So he gives him like, three three-quarter developed character arcs yeah. as opposed to one well that's the same for everybody yeah nobody has a well-developed motive in this book well but i kind of feel like the the roster's in the sense that but they're sort of one-dimensional and yeah. so i do feel like there's something about there's something kind of exoticizing there are a yes. lot of there's a lot of moments where case is looking at malcolm and like looking at his naked back and his dreadlocks and also uh his description of uh, neuromancer as the Brazilian boy mm. with his bright red gums. Yeah. There's the, there is a kind of exotization of non whiteness, yep. kind of noble savage quality, to both of those things. That again, I don't think it's something that William Gibson is doing on purpose. I think it 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 and it's. Um, but I, I, I imagine that if I. You know, if I were Jamaican, I might find that a little bit insulting. Totally. It, it works. I'm fine with it personally. Yeah. I'm just, I just am aware. I'm like, ah, oh, that sort of seems like it's condescending. But I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe somebody who's Rastafarian would read this and be like, yeah, it's great. He nailed. He nailed. That's exactly how our people would behave in this situation. I don't know, but I agree. I, I agree that. I mean, I think it is a great book with flaws, yeah. and, and maybe, maybe your definition of a great book. Is... I think we're we're on the other side of a narrow wall. Uh, right. You know, I think
1: this is a I think this is a very good book with enough flaws that disqualify it from becoming a great book. And I think you're saying it's a great book with some flaws, but it's still a great book.
0: Well, in the same way that I think that the Fellowship of the Ring is a great book, right? It, I could again, I'll, I could cut a hundred pages from it. There's yeah. parts I don't like, but it. It, it, it And I think there's a form, there's greatness of craft and there's greatness of innovation. Mm-hmm. And this book has the greatness of innovation. Oh, for sure. And it also has the spine of a philosophical treatise and story mm-hmm. to it. It's just that our writer is kind of moving the lens around yeah. too much and giving us a little bit too much. It's like he's got the spine of the animal he's trying to create and then just giving it like... Too many arms and legs and fangs and things like that
1: it 's got a little bit of a two a m like sophomoric somewhat stoned philosophy to it um, it 's got a little bit of waking life and mm. uh, and, that's, and that, those are the, those are the moments where i 'm like oh Um, you know, get us, get us out of here. All right. So I think I am the host. You are the host.
0: Um, all right. Trivia. This is, I've been on a,
1: I've been on a losing run recently. You've turned things around. I've been on a down run. Yeah.
0: So I I started strong. I was like the, the trivia hitter who like batted 400 in April and May (laughs) and then went on a June slump and then you went on a June tear and our batting averages got very close. Yeah. Um, now I'm in the September slump. (sighs) Well, I don't know. The baseball season is weird, though, because hopefully Upper Middle Brow lasts forever. <laughs> well, baseball lasts forever. Yes. You're right. You're yeah. right. This is our... Yeah, right. We're coming to the end of our first season. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, okay. One of the things I noticed as I was... You know, this book has been described as prescient, but it actually is not super prescient in terms of the way that people use the internet. And mm-hmm. we don't really have cyberspace in the sense that he imagined it cybercrime is really a lot more like con artistry yeah. like tricking people into giving you their passwords than it is like using chinese ice to attack the mainframe <laughs> you know I don't, so i don't actually think it ends up being that prescient in that respect but man the tessier ashpools remind me of some billionaire families yes. and one of the families they remind me of is the musk family oh my god um Amazing. so Which of these, I'm going to give you four nodes of resemblances between the Musk family and the Tessier-Ashpool, and one of them is fictitious. Okay. So one of these is not true. Okay. A, a member of the Musk family has overseen the creation of a powerful artificial intelligence mainframe. B, the Musk family has successfully used the ambiguities around laws governing orbital objects to avoid regulation. C, the Musk family is heavily invested in chirogenics as a way of preserving life after natural lifespans. And D, a member of the Musk family has had sexual relations with another member of the family from a younger generation. Okay, D has definitely happened. <laughs>
1: You know, I um, believe that Mr. Uh, uh, Pear Musk, um, I've referred to in our notes, uh, the the head Ashpool as Pear Ashpool. Um, I believe Pear Musk has a real thing against
0: AIs, so I'm going to go with A. <laughs> That may be true, but Elon has heavily invested uh, in a AI to rival ChatGBT. Um, God, who am things. I thinking of that really um, thinks... That... Errol Musk might have a thing against them. Interesting. Uh, so the correct answer is C. Um, as far as I know, as far as I could tell, the Musk family has not heavily invested in chirogenics. Uh, um, that was the although... one that I
1: also seemed to think was like, oh, that doesn't seem... But I really... I was like, I thought, I thought Musk was really... Uh, that Elon Musk was really like... No, AIs are going to kill us all. But maybe I'm thinking of another um, Silicon Valley tycoon. Yeah, uh, I think that kind of rings a
0: bell. Yeah, too. And I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure which one. Oh
1: God! Another swing and a miss. Okay, well, let's see if you can keep your hit streak going. All right. Okay. Uh, so Gibson wrote Neuromancer on a typewriter. Um, since in the period that he was writing it, like '82, '83, uh, only the Apple II, not even the two E, existed, um, and it was pretty darn expensive. He'd never even seen a computer. Uh, when he did encounter a computer, Gibson, A, was delighted, saying, even though this thing is far from the devices I imagined in Neuromancer, I can see these personal computers eventually becoming and probably surpassing the devices that I wrote in Neuromancer. B, disappointed, finding them, quote, quite ordinary. C, didn't even know that the box with the tiny screen he was sitting next to was a computer.
0: Those are the three options? Yeah, Delighted, disappointed, oblivious. Years ago, I would say in the 90s, I watched a like video documentary where William Gibson was interviewed about this, and I remember him being disappointed, and specifically disappointed at the loud, clunky sound the hard drive made <laughs> Brrr, <laughs> when it loaded up. So, <laughs> well, I, th- I still think that C is plausible. I do remember him expressing disappointment because he thought that computers would be these sort of sleek, silent you know, n- n- demons lurking in the corner of the room, and they turned out to be these kind of mid-century industrial loud-sounding boxes. Yeah, they're the garbage droid right. in the Jawa's
1: uh, exactly. sand crawler. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, you got it. Disappointed, finding them quite ordinary. Uh, I even enjoyed writing a, uh, a Gibson-esque desperate sans, uh, sentence for the first one. Yeah. But uh, nice work. You, you continue the hit streak. I, I continue to uh, miss
0: the ball got to go out there and give 110% every day and hope for the best, you know, just try to keep a positive attitude, keep swinging, you know, sometimes the bat's singing, sometimes it's not, but I just, just try to go out there every day and do the best I can.
1: I mean, you know, especially if there's dipping Dots involved. I mean, I thought that <laughs> I got to get out there, I got to win some, uh, you know, we win again, that's another day of dipping Dots, that's another per diem. Chris Bagg bag offered dots.
0: me some Dots to blow this quiz, and I was tempted, but uh, I decided that... Dippin' Dots, actually, I can afford on my budget. <laughs> yeah. um, JPD, uh, will you read this book again? Wow. Um, you know, I didn't actually think about that before. I, th- I probably will. I seem to read it about once a decade, mm. and I, I always find something new when I do that. Um, and it's very, very dense. So probably in another decade, I'll, it reads pretty quickly at this yeah. point, especially now that I know what it's about. Do um, so care. Yeah, I, well, I think so. I think <laughs> so at this point. Um, especially, and I now know the plot. And so na- on, even on this read, I found myself noticing little details because I was spending less time trying to puzzle together mm-hmm. the plot. And that, you know, like the little thing that I shared with you about, you know, burning bush three Jane told me, or like, you know, screen went funny. Then mute said, put the headphone, like just all of those little moments that are are delightful. Um, I discovered them on this third read. And so I think it continue. I continue to find delights in it. So I Hmm. think I will read it again. How about you? Yeah, I think so too. Um, I'm not crazy about it, but I would
1: like to, continue to try to firm up my sense of just what the fuck happened. (laughs) Um, and, and, and to maybe lurch towards a more greater understanding of the big rhetorical idea. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I don't think, I, I think he gestures at a lot of big rhetorical ideas. Um, I don't think he quite manages to corral them into a effective, uh, piece of ice breaking. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I'm. I mean, I continue to be intrigued by it. Hmm. Um, it did pull my attention along in the same way it did when I was in the back of the car in Yellowstone National Park when I was 17. Um, this time, I was reading more for kind of the fascination of of like a watching a car crash um, rather than then, which I think really was a like I really want to know what happens um, narratively. Hmm. But um, yeah, I will give this another crack. I think you, it seems like you're a really big Gibson fan. You've read a lot of him, you've said. And uh, I would, uh, I'd like to read
0: a few more books. And um, yeah, I'm interested. Uh, Yeah, there's a trilogy, Yeah, uh, the Sprawl trilogy. And then, yeah, I don't know. I always just, whenever a new one came out, I would always read it. And I finally read pretty quickly, even though I don't always understand. I do think, you know, there might be, It's interesting that maybe if he had developed as a writer a few more years before getting his first book deal, maybe he would have developed some better habits. Because I do think that for years, you often had this kind of hapless protagonist plot Mm -hmm. where they're these sort of powerful agents. Um, But I do think he's a very fascinating cultural observer and sort of his imagination of like how the powerful people would use technology and then how the rest of us would fit into that is kind of fascinating. I also think, like, you know, we, we talk about the weakness of the protagonist and decision points, and I think all of that stuff's there, but I also think maybe he's... It's almost like there's an element of Greek tragedy in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of like, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you're going to do, Case, because you're fated to, like, merge Wintermute and Neuromancer together, and Wintermute and Neuromancer and the Tessier Ashpools are... Far more powerful than Mm -hmm. anything, than any force you could bring to bear. And so this sort of idea that these characters are just kind of like chess pieces and that the fates decide, you know, what's going to happen to us and that, that there aren't necessarily big choices to make, um, you know, it's a different kind of year. Although now that I say that, I'm like, well, but case did make a choice. Mm -hmm. Case made two choices in this book and they were, you didn't necessarily know that it was important at the time, but the, the, the choice that the choice that case makes the choice that case makes to, to come out of the hallucination is sort of, that is the dramatic conclusion of the book. After that, it's all just mop up basically. Totally, Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, I guess I do like Gibson, even though I see that weakness. I still just enjoy spending time in the worlds that he creates, and I actually think he's gotten better. Mm. I think the last two books, like The Peripheral really and Spook that. Country, are are probably the strongest things he's done in twenty years or nice. something like that too. But the other ones, they all they're all fun. They all kind of there, there's one that's sort of set on a kind of like community of semi homeless people who all live on Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I think it's called the Bridge Trilogy, and that's uh-huh. set in more near future. Um, I enjoy those as well. Um, But anyway, um, what's next? Uh, Next
1: up, we are continuing on in this series, which is called uh, It's Not What It Seems. Uh, And we are going to be reading Philip K. Dick's um, masterpiece. I don't know. uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, which was the inspiration for the movie Blade Runner. And
0: uh, yeah, that's what is coming up next. Thank you so much for listening. A reminder that if you want to win a brick tune or name the other... Magic Box 2. Magic Box 2 Bluetooth. All you have to do is send us some evidence that you have convinced a friend uh, to listen to Upper Middle Brow. Uh, whatever, evidence, whatever evidence you want to present uh, is is adequate for us. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the two lobes of the UMB mainframe. Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Additional music composed by Pef King and performed by The Broken Spokes. Design and website by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com.
1: And as a reminder, everybody, Jesse and I are both writers and editors and can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing projects. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbagg.com and jessiedukes.com. Check it out and get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your projects, big or small.
0: All right, let's go surfing.